0: Ireland is water country leased to solid ground. When the end comes, it will come in a long seep, the rivers pooling out to meet as friends, locks unnamed by sea. Final lights on the hilltops, Donard, Molloclevan, Caran Twill, then the fussing of damp firewood, last of the human smells, and a lifting at the waist as land drops away, lease expired. Water is a great temptation for the Irish writer. James Joyce opens Ulysses atop a Martello tower overlooking Dublin Bay, where Buck Mulligan muses on the snot green sea, the scrotum tightening sea. The first word of Finnegan's Wake is river run. Standing on a grey pavement, W.B. Yeats is recalled to the Lake Isle of Innisfree by the sound of lake water lapping within his heart. There is no escaping the water. Even Boland's Cityscape, hardly a promising title for the literary dowser, is a poem about light, but takes in a trip to the seawater baths, finds Dublin forever unsettled between sluice gates and the Irish Sea, and closes with the image of a glass eel, a translucent visitor yearning for the estuary. Jonathan Swift wrote his first great work, A Tale of a Tub, while a clergyman at Kilroot, a small place on the northern shore of Belfast Lough. Irish literature is suffused with a chill damp that lingers between the toes. The sea, as Buck Mulligan observes, is our great sweet mother. Every Irish city sits beside a trembling flatness. Belfast, Cork and Derry have their sea locks. Dublin crouches low to the bay. Galway braves the North Atlantic. Limerick is almost a delta city, straddling the Shannon as it finds the ocean. Waterford's name tells its own story. Out in the countryside are the peat bogs, the streams, the brown water standing at the edge of fields, the punkish algae advancing always across bus stops and machinery and the windows of half-built homes, moss grouting walls. The hills are green and indigo, except for a few days in the winter cold when they pale into white. Water is a constant companion on this island, the writer's natural reference and resource. I begin with water because Northern Ireland is liquid in every possible sense. Books about this place are usually prefaced by a glossary of political positions and cultural identities. I have succumbed to this temptation myself, in order to give a basic orientation to readers unfamiliar with Northern Ireland's unique vocabulary. But such thumbnail sketches are always failures in the end bungalows built on floodplains. They are failures because they attempt to order a watery world, in which liquids become solid for a time, only to melt away again. This acceptance of a liquid world unites the writers in this book. Many would be suspicious of a work which claims to be about Northern Irish writers, and rightly so. A common birthplace is no guarantee of common purpose especially a birthplace that many would regard as illegitimate. It would be foolish to pretend that writers share anything of significance just because they are from the same place. Northern Ireland is a political fact, but the same cannot be said for its culture. Michael Longley, frustrated with the attempts of journalists and scholars to corral the poets who emerged in Belfast in the 1960s and 70s into a literary movement, said, I don't think for a split second we thought in terms of Northern Irish poetry or Ulster poetry or being Ulster poets. There was no group, there was no school, there was no manifesto. Are not writers like Seamus Heaney, Derek Mayon, Maeve McGuckian and Louis McNeese simply Irish, without qualification? Indeed, to follow Longley's argument to its natural conclusion, are they not simply poets? Each of them wrestled with these questions in their own way, but the novelists and poets in this book do share a deep awareness of change, uncertainty, and even threat. Above all, there is homesickness.